is Generation Justice. I'm Pilar Monfaletto. And I'm Joshua Horton. Recently, District 1 Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham hosted a voters' rights panel at the University of New Mexico. The panel focused on the historical struggle, struggle for voting rights and in how it manifests itself in laws, policies, and rulings today. Panelists included District 15 Senator Daniel Ivy Soto, who is passionate about legislation around voters' rights. Good policy ought to be nonpartisan mm -hmm. when we're talking about people voting because voting is a process. It's a process that, frankly, both parties use. We also heard from Adrian Lawyer, the executive director of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And the people that we're serving at our center are experiencing such overwhelming poverty and discrimination that for them voting is not even the concern. It's how do we even find a way for those people to feel integrated into our culture in any way that's meaningful for them. Through this panel, Congresswoman Lujan Grisham has created a dialogue about how public policy around voting can be transformed. So stay tuned to hear more from these panelists. Before that, here's our first track of the night by Silver Sun Pickups. It's called Creation Lake. Our first speaker of the night is Pamela Herndon, who has served as the Deputy Cabinet Secretary and the Assistant Attorney General in New Mexico. Now she's the Executive Director of the, Women's, of the Southwest Women's Law Center, which dedicates itself to eliminating gender bias, discrimination, and harassment here in New Mexico. And here's Pamela Herndon. I'm Pamela Herndon, the Executive Director of the Southwest Women's Law Center. And at the Law Center, we work really hard to make sure that women use the most powerful tool that they have in their war test, and it is the power to vote. There are lots and lots of issues, and you saw them occurring during the legislative session that affect women, something that they saw that they didn't like. We told women, you've got to use that power to vote in 2016. I'm going to just share a couple of items with you about the Supreme Court decision that was rendered to change the 1965 voting rights. Act. And so I said, well, I need to condense this decision in just a few minutes to tell everybody exactly what the Supreme Court did. So the Voting Rights Act was signed into law on August the 6th, 1965, by President Lyndon B. Johnson. And as you know, during that time, it was the height of the civil rights era. Lots and lots of events were going on, and the nation was just devastated by all of the events that were primarily occurring in the South. And on June 25th, 2013, the Supreme Court rendered the most devastating knockout punch to voting rights. So the case that caused this knockout was known as Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder. And if we look at what the Supreme Court did on that date on June 25th, they said, okay, 
we are going to take Shelby County, Alabama, which was primarily a white suburb in Alabama, who brought their case against Section 5, which Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act says that you know what, all these states must present their plan to either the United States Attorney or to the Department of Justice if they want to change any areas at all in their voting rights. And so the court listened to the arguments, but rather than ruling on Section 5, what the court did was it ruled on Section 4. Now, Section 4 was the formula which determines which states were going to be subject to Section 5. And the court said, oh my gosh, after all these years of that formula being in place, it's out of date. Surely, in all these years, things have gotten better. Voting has gotten better. Life has gotten better. We don't have the discriminatory areas that existed back in 1964. So it struck down that law and it said, United States Congress, what you need to do is you've got to go and you have got to come up with a new formula if you want this voting rights act formula to stay in place. Well, Congress tried, and I'm going to tell you, Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham tried. So they tried really, really hard to put a new voting rights provision in place so that Section 5 could stay in place. Well, it hasn't happened yet. So let me tell you what's going on now that Section 5 can no longer be applicable because the formula determining which states would be subject to Section 5 has been totally deleted. This is what's happening. There is now this voter ID law that's in place. So you have to have a state-issued voter ID. A woman who is a judge in Texas could not vote because her voter ID did not match what was on the rolls, so she couldn't vote. So it did away with things that gave people the opportunity to vote to say who they wanted in office. There was no longer this souls to the poll. I really like that one on Sunday. So on Sunday after church, you could go and you could register to vote. In addition, anybody who was not quite 18 years old could actually pre-register to vote. Well, those laws have been struck down and they are no longer in existence. So what are we going to do about it? Before I turn over my microphone to Maggie to Luce Oliver, let me just share a couple of statements with you made by John Lewis, a man who was there at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and who walked, who was beaten, and who walks with a limp today because of the injuries that incurred on that awful, awful day. So he says, I disagree with the court that the history of discrimination is somehow irrelevant today. So that's what the court was saying. And he said, the record clearly demonstrates numerous attempts to impede voting rights and the problems that exist today. He said, it does not matter that those attempts are not pervasive, widespread, or rampant as they were in 1965. He said, they exist in some form of another. He said, look at Trayvon Martin, look at Walter Scott, look at Eric Garner, look at Michael Brown. He said, I want you to know that as Justice Ginsburg mentioned in her comments regarding that bloody Sunday, he said, we have got to fix this. And so I'm going to close by looking at the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. How long is it going to take Congress to fix this act now? How long? Not long. How long? Not long. I like how Pamela quoted John Lewis in his disagreement with the court, that the history of discrimination isn't irrelevant today. 
if you look back at poll taxes, literacy tests, and voter intimidation that was used to try to disqualify people of color and their right to vote. It's sad to see things like voter ID laws are in place and causing limitations on people voting today. I think it's important to be able to vote, and these new laws are awful because not every person is voicing their opinion, which is so needed in our country, so that we can practice equality and progress as a nation. People need to go through obstacles to have a basic right, and that's really sad. All right, and now for our next song for the night. It's called New Year by Beach House. Next, we hear from Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, Bernalillo County Clerk since 2007. County Clerk Toulouse-Oliver's top priorities are protecting the right to vote and improving the integrity of the election process. And she is definitely the woman to go to in order to improve our voting process in New Mexico. She grew up right here in our state, and she got her master's degree in political science at UNM. Now, here's Maggie Toulouse-Oliver to continue this discussion. Voter ID is very much a modern iteration of the poll tax, of the literacy test, of all of the mechanisms that were put in place in the past, in the Jim Crow era, et cetera, to prevent people from being able to cast a ballot. Voter ID sounds really innocuous, and when you poll people, a vast majority of people say, oh, this is common sense, we need an ID to get on a plane or to, to buy alcohol. But the point being that this is just another barrier that's being erected. So what I've been focused on is what can we do in the county clerk's office to make it easier? Even within the confines and the constraints of state statute and administrative rule and what our county uh, commissions give us in terms of the budgets we have to work with, we have a lot of power to make decisions. And one of the first decisions I made uh, when I came into the county clerk's office was that it was clear to me that we needed to expand early voting in Bernalillo County. Over the years, early voting had become more and more popular, less of a novelty. More and more people were taking advantage of it. And we saw a lot of long lines at early voting in the 2006 election before I became county clerk. And I looked forward to 2008, knew we were going to have a presidential election that year, and knew that we were going to have to provide more access points to the ballot box in early voting because more and more people, again, from a, a data-driven point of view, I could see the numbers were pointing to that more and more people were taking advantage of that. And what we didn't want to do was discourage people from voting. If you have to go, you have to stand in a very long line, that tends to discourage people from wanting to participate in the process, right? Especially if you're a new voter if you've never done it before and you have to wait and wait and wait. So the first thing we did in 08 was we expanded those early voting opportunities. We saw record early voting turnout and not just early voting but voting turnout in general in 2008 in the general election here in Bernalillo County. In fact I was here personally right across the hall on the first day of early voting for the presidential election in 08. I, I went there in the morning thinking we'll open it up, we'll kick it off, we'll get it going. After we closed the polls at five o'clock, and I had not sat down or eaten all day long because we had such a horde of people, and I say that in a good way, coming to vote, I realized, oh my gosh, 
it's even bigger and more than we expected. So what we had such a crush on early voting in the 2008 election that we actually basically went into emergency management mode and petitioned the Secretary of State to expand early voting hours in that election, which we did here in Bernalillo County. And the point I'm making is that as county clerk, these are some things that I can do to try to help facilitate the voting process if I value voter participation as a core value, which I do. Looking forward to future elections, we expanded even further in 2010 knowing, well, we really actually need even more sites. So we do more than the statutory minimum here in Bernalillo County because the values that I have dictate that the statutory minimum is not enough. Not enough for the voters. Not if we're looking at voting behavior. Not if we are looking realistically at what do the voters of this county need? How do they behave? How do they participate in elections? We need to provide what, what is actually being utilized if we want to continue to facilitate a positive uh, voting experience for the voters, which we do. Um, in 2011, uh, Senator Ivy Soto and I worked together along with uh, my fellow county clerks to advocate for legislation that would allow us to do the same thing on election day that we do at early voting. And we created, um, we passed, successfully passed the bill that allows for vote centers on election day. And the reason we did that is not only does that help us as election administrators to better do our jobs, which again provides a better experience for the voters, but it's also better for voters. It's more convenient. And uh, the data, and, and one thing that I want to mention that we do here in our county clerk's office is we work very closely with the political science department at UNM. We study our election process every election cycle to make sure we know what we're doing well, but also to, to make sure that we know what we need to improve upon for the next election cycle. And so what we did when we implemented the vote centers uh, for the first time in 2012 here in Bernalillo County is we took a very hard look at that to see if the voters actually liked it. Do they like it? As well as voting at their precinct? Is it convenient for them? Was it easy for them to find where they could vote? And the data all came back to us a resounding yes. The voters liked it. They found it convenient. The great thing about it for us was that it enabled us to cut about a million dollars out of our election budget per election cycle. And what we did was we actually took that money and we reinvested it back into educating voters about the change in the process and where they could go vote and how they could find the information about about how to go cast a ballot. And so it's not just enough for us to create these systems that make it easier and more accessible for people to vote, but it's also incumbent upon us as election officials to help educate voters about that and to provide information. Because if we're not providing you information about how, where, and when you can cast your ballot, then we might as well not be doing anything to change it and make it better. Because if you don't know about it, you're not going to take advantage of it, right? Um, so again, that's another really critical component that I see about improving access for voters is providing that voter education. And I think there can be partnerships with um, advocacy groups and with political parties and with candidates, but there really is a core responsibility, I believe, on the part of elected officials, election officials, to provide that information to the public. Where we go from here is we're continuing to work on policies and develop um, internal pr processes as well as on legislation. And I, I'm going to really let um, Senator Ivy Soto speak about the legislative initiatives that we uh, undertook this session. Uh, it was quite the wild ride for us working on those this time. But we're continuing to look at how to improve the election process, make it better, and continuing to expand access and make the voting experience a good experience for everybody involved. So with that, thank you. The fact that so many people came out to vote early was amazing, but the discrimination that goes with voting isn't right. 
Using the county clerk's office to inform voters is a really great system. Voter education is really needed. So we want to give a special thank you to county clerk Toulouse Oliver. Back to the music. This song is called Neptune Estate and it's by King Cruel. Just one more night I wanna be with you I wanna be used You can't do better Just one more night I can lay inside You know I hold you tight Can't do better Just one more night I wanna be with you Senator Daniel Ivy Soto is the next is next on the voters' rights panel. He has served District 15 for the past two years. Senator Ivy Soto has also served as executive director of NM County Clerks, where he was the legislative and regulatory representative for New Mexico's 33 county clerks. He has also been our former state elections director, a prosecutor, and a school teacher. So he brings a lot of different and relevant experiences to the voting rights table. Here is, Dan, here is Senator Daniel Ivy Soto. For lunch today, I went to an event that was hosted by Peter Butter and Jelly, and they had their Fathers in Transition program. This particular program, these are, these are men who've been in, in prison, and they are trying to get skills and jobs and care for their families, care for their children, and the challenges that they face. And there was a, there was a young man sitting at the table that I was at. His name was Josh. And, and I, I asked him, I said, so what's, you know, what's your story? And what are the challenges, uh, as we were talking, what are the challenges that you faced since, since you got out of prison? And, and he said, well, one of the biggest challenges he, he faced was, was just simply trying to get the right documents. He said he had, a, he had a birth certificate when he got out. And so he went down to, to get his identification. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, but you need to have your social security card. So he couldn't get his ID because he needed a social security card. So he went down to get a social security card, and they said, where's your ID? And, and he said, well, I've got a birth certificate. They said, no, I'm sorry, you need an ID to get a social security card. They said, but, but they won't give me an ID without a, my social security card. So, you know, and, and he was stuck in this trap. And fortunately, through the support of Peanut Butter and Jelly Services, they were able to, to help him get out of that loop. But part of the problem is, is that it's a loop that we all take for granted. Because whenever we talk about issues like voter ID, everybody in the room who's talking about it, certainly everyone who's a decision maker, has an ID on them or near them during that conversation. And we're not talking about ourselves and the challenges that we have. We're talking about other people. So let's run down some of the uh, issues that came up during this last legislative session. And in New Mexico, we're very fortunate that county clerks take a very proactive position on legislative issues and on policy issues in general. And, and I'm very fortunate about this because I'm their executive director. And, but as a state, we're very fortunate about it because our clerks are not simply administering their uh, elections. Our clerks are also asking the questions, what's the next step? What more can we do? How can we do this better? And, and a lot of the legislation that goes forth, if it goes forth through the right channels, the clerks have a chance to go through and say, this is what works on a daily basis. This isn't what works on a daily basis. 
And so we had, for example, a bill that we affectionately call the ERIC bill. And uh, ERIC's not the guy who wrote it. Uh, ERIC stands for the uh, Election Registration Information Center. And it is a national consortium of election officials who are doing uh, proactive, using consumer databases to be proactive about registering new people to, to vote, about knowing who may have moved and who may need to have their registration transferred to another jurisdiction. It's, it's really a tremendous commitment on behalf of the election administrators to be in the program. And the county clerks have endorsed this. They endorsed it four years ago. They've been pushing this and wanting uh, this to move forward. Uh, so this is one of the bills that we were uh, pushing this year and that, and that was moving through the process. We had another bill dealing with prosecution of election crimes. And this is a tricky one, right? Because we don't want to single people out. We don't want to dissuade people from voting. But we want people to have confidence in the voting process. We want to have people have confidence in the integrity of voting. Part of the problem that we have right now is we have people who want to diminish the confidence people have and suggest to people there's no good reason why you should be voting. And so they will, they will then do things and then hold a press conference and say, well, look what I just did. And we'd like for them to have the full experience of breaking the law um, <laughs> if they're going to do that so that people can, can see what that process is like and to give folks some confidence uh, in the voting process. We had another bill dealing with, with the Uniform Military and Overseas Voters Act to make it easier for people who are deployed or who are overseas to be able to vote in New Mexico. We actually have pretty good laws in New Mexico. We wanted to refine it a little bit more. Uh, and then finally, we had, uh, we had a cleanup bill that the, that the clerks have been working on for three years. And then we had an, an online voter registration bill. You know, people just assume in this day and age, of course, I can go update my registration online. Well, you can't in New Mexico. You can in 24 of the states, not New Mexico. Ultimately, we, we merged all of these together into one bill that is named Voter Registration Procedures. It was Senate Bill 643. It's really interesting with some of these issues. You know, right now, the county clerks in Florida are pushing online voter registration. It's a convenience to voters. It brings people into the system. We actually get better information. We get more accurate information because we're not retyping what someone else already knows about themselves. We're not trying to, to understand somebody's scribbly handwriting. Frankly, it's a, it's a great process to move towards. And the Secretary of State in Florida, who's an appointed official, not elected official, has come out against this. And the, the Florida legislature is over two-thirds Republican. Good Policy ought to be nonpartisan mm -hmm. when we're talking about people voting, because voting is a process. It's a process that, frankly, both parties use, and both parties can capitalize on. And the great thing about the work through the clerks is that we have county clerks who are very Democratic, very Republican, and yet they're able to come together and say, what's good policy to put into place for the, for, to have a great system in New Mexico for people to be able to vote? The day after this panel, Governor Martinez did sign the Senate Bill 643 on online voter the online voter registration bill. Which included Senator Ivy Soto's three bills, the Uniform Military and Overseas Voter Act, the Election Code Cleanup, and the Eric Bill. The hoops that people have to jump through are so frustrating. The story about Josh not being able to get a voter ID because he needed a social security card is really a prime example of the confusing obstacles that people have to face to be able to vote. I think putting vo voter information online would be great and would make voter registration easier and a huge leap forward in the strides to give rights to vote to to give rights to every voter. I think it's important for policymakers to step back 
and think from the perspective of a person like Josh who had a hard time to even receive a voter ID. So thank you to Daniel Ivy Soto for sharing his story about Josh. Now here's the song by L1011 called My Only Swerving. Continuing our discussion around voters' rights in New Mexico is Israel Chavez, head of the Government Relations for Equality NM. Equality NM focuses on the struggles impacting the LGBTQ community and is a civil rights and advocacy organization. Israel Chavez is joined by Adrian Lawyer, Executive Director for the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Adrian has provided transgender cultural competency training all over New Mexico and is working for equality and accessibility resources for the entire transgender community. To continue this dialogue, here is Israel Chavez. I'm with Equality New Mexico. My name is Israel Chavez. I handle their government affairs. And I wanted to open with sort of a concept that some folks may not be familiar with, something called intersectionality. And in New Mexico, I think we're pretty keen on it um, because our state has grown up in a population that is, we were never just Americans, we were never just New Mexicans, we were also Hispanics, Spanish, Mexican. We have all these identities that, that intersect. And when we talk about African Americans who struggle to vote, when we talk about women who struggle to vote, when we talk about the LGBT community that also struggles to vote, it's important to note that when you're a African-American woman who is LGBT, it's really hard to vote. And so keeping that in mind, that, that identities matter, and we are not just our individual identity. And so, so when we talk about these issues, I'm so glad that we do talk about people as more than their identities. And uh, you know, I'm, I identify as a gay man, but I'm also a native New Mexican. My grandparents are immigrants, and that compounds. And so really understanding that the struggle with voting goes beyond just, just, you know, your last name may be changed, but you also, there's a whole host of issues that you could be experiencing when going to the polls. And I think our elected officials in New Mexico go to the legislature voluntarily, unpaid, and understand that and, and move forward with the understanding that we are more than just uh, one little slice of our, our identity pie. I want to let Adrian talk about the experience of tra- transgender and gender nonconforming folks in the, in the lens of voting because I'm not trans and I'm not gender nonconforming, so I, I think it's, it'd be unfair for me to try to speak on someone else's experience. So if I can, turn it over to Adrian. You know, I do a presentation called Transgender 101. I do it all over the state of New Mexico. I've done it more than 400 times now. And so when I'm in a room like this, I never assume that everyone in this room even knows what transgender means. So I just want to real briefly cover that in case we're not all on the same page about what the definition of transgender is. So for us right now, the way we define transgender is a person whose internal sense of their own gender, what we call gender identity, does not match up with the sex they were assigned at birth. And we assign sex at birth just based on genitals and body, right? So, so essentially what it means is the person doesn't feel completely aligned with what was said about them when they were born being a boy or a girl. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the opposite 
for someone like me, that is true. I was assigned female at birth, but I have known that I was male since I was two years old. In my 30s, I was able to access some uh, medical treatments that for me were really key in, in feeling healed about this and being able to uh, care for my body and love my body and inhabit my body. So for me, as a trans person, it sort of is the opposite, my assigned sex and my gender identity. But for some trans people, that's not the case at all. And even in our communities, as we move forward with our activism, frequently the folks that get left out are people who don't feel the opposite in that way, people who don't transition, people who maybe inhabit a more in-between space, people whose gender identity is maybe more fluid. One of our early victories as an agency um, was to uh, work with the MVD here in New Mexico to really facilitate and streamline the process to change your gender marker on your driver's license. Because what we know is that mismatched identity documents, identity documents that don't reflect who you really are, cause a lot of problems, not just in voting, but in anywhere that you have to show an ID to receive services. And so we felt great about the fact that someone like me can much more easily change my gender marker from F to M. But of course, who gets left out of here is people who don't want an F or an M on their driver's license. And people who maybe don't look recognizably like male or female or masculine or feminine based on our gender norms. So it's important for us to remember that, you know, even when we talk about transgender people, we're not just talking about the ability to change M to F and F to M, but we're talking about folks and how do we create and maintain identity documents for people that really reflect who they are instead of, you know, pushing people into these categories where they don't fit and, and are not able to use those documents very easily. So in case you don't know about our center, the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico has been around since 2008. We do advocacy and education all over the state of New Mexico, and we have a drop-in center here in town. We provide really basic survival needs for folks like clothing, food, uh, monthly bus passes, access to the computer and the internet, um, peer support, licensed mental health counseling, employment, search assistance, HIV testing, harm reduction services, just a whole bunch of stuff that we offer over at the drop-in center. What we notice is that the folks who come and access our drop-in center here in Albuquerque tend to be people who have a lot of intersecting identities, all of which are oppressed identities, right? The people that we tend to serve at our drop-in center are overwhelmingly transgender women, so the opposite of me, right? A person who is assigned male at birth but is a female person. They are transgender women. They are almost always folks of color. They are almost always experiencing homelessness or severe housing insecurity. They are folks who have to access street-level economy just to survive. So we absolutely see that trans people are in every single group of people, and that there are many, many trans people who feel that they have some sort of a stake in our, in our culture and in our society. And for those folks, there are real challenges to voting and having their ID uh, match their, their presentation. It can be a real challenge to get your name changed and get those things updated, and we really do need to look at those processes and make sure that trans people can access them. But what sticks out for me thinking about all of this is the people who come to our drop-in center who would never in a million years even imagine trying to go and vote. They really do not feel that there is any reason for them to vote. They do not feel that they are being given a foothold in this society at all. These are some of the most marginalized people in our community right now, right? And I think it's really, um, it's powerful to reflect back on Selma and on that, on that bridge and the brave, amazing people who, who put their lives on the line for these rights. And I think we also need to remember, you know, that Dr. King at the end of his life was talking about waging a full-scale assault on poverty. And the people that we're serving at our center 
are experiencing such overwhelming poverty and discrimination that for them voting is not even the concern. It's how do we even find a way for those people to feel integrated into our culture in any way that's meaningful for them? How do we have people even see that as something that would impact their lives in a real and meaningful way? I'm a privileged person. I'm a privileged person as a trans person. I absolutely understand that participating in municipal elections and county elections and voting affects my life day to day and things that I care about in my own life. But so many of the people that I work for don't feel that way at all. They don't feel that this has anything to do with them, right? So it's not even about how do we help them work through the process of voting. It's how do we help them to care? How do we help them to even care about voting or think that this has anything to do with their lives at all? And I really do believe that a big part of that is going to be focusing on really trying to come up with some actual solutions around the level of poverty and discrimination and violence that I think transgender women of color shine a light on, but that really affects so many other people. Like with any issue that affects trans people, it's affecting lots of people. But our folks are the, almost the canary in the coal mine right now in terms of showing us how violent we can be and how exclusive we can be to whole entire groups of people. I had no idea that transgender people had such a hard time with voter registration. I never thought about the fact that all of their legal paperwork would be messed up because of their gender change. It's hard to think about the fact that trans people don't feel like they're a part of society and don't feel like they can or should vote. Thank you, Israel and Adrian, for helping me understand that today. It's important to respect and include people who are transgender. What you identify as shouldn't be discriminated against. So thank you to Israel, Israel Chavez and Adrian Lawyer. Next up on our playlist is a band called Slow Dive. The song is When the Sun Hits. Finally, to close the panel is Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham. She has served as District 1's representative since 2013. She has previously served as the head of the New Mexico Department of Health and also the Bernalillo County Commissioner. Congresswoman Lujan Grisham hosted a free screening of the movie Selma as a way to reopen the discussing about voting rights in America. This panel is a way to continue that discussion, specifically about New Mexico. And here's Congresswoman Lujan Grisham. It is hard. I mean, as a candidate who has to run all the time, it is hard to figure out how to communicate with voters and how to keep them engaged and how to direct that in in a way that's meaningful. So I I don't think that that's uh, an inappropriate statement or uh, identification by candidates, but that's not the issue. All right, if it should be hard, you should work hard. And what the current system does by targeting voters is that while we think we're targeting issues, we're creating partisan divides. And if you wanted to have a less partisan, less pushing on either side, particularly during election time, which when you do talk to folks after an election about how they feel, we don't feel good. It was felt hateful and angry and negative and, and it was too hard. If you had universal registration, all these different kinds of models, 
I think you would have folks talk about more of who they are, what their priorities are, how they demonstrate that they could do something about those. And elections would be a little less partisan, particularly, I think, at the federal level. And it's just something to think about, and it's something we need to talk to candidates about. Because as a candidate, and we're, many of us are candidates, that's a hard thing, uh, because I prefer, as a person, to get to talk about why I care about the things I care about, and why it's important to me for you to have a space to tell me what's important to you and see how we can do all those things together. And I think that keeps voters engaged, but the processes that we have for both voting and getting people elected don't quite work. Now this was not a panel to talk about how to get us or anybody else elected. And we want everyone who's interested in running, particularly women of all ages, get out there and run. And I mean particularly women just because we get a gender gap, so let's, let's get that addressed. But it is all related, and this country has got to do something about making people feel good about their responsibility, and that it's warranted, and that that civic effort is making a difference in their lives. And having laws that allow states to not care about that is really problematic. And now I'm going to end with kind of a negative, and then I'm going to end with a positive, uh, which is Congress is not likely to do the Voter Empowerment Act this year. We're not going to do it. And we're going we're gonna to fight hard to do it in 2016, which is the last chance for the 114th congressional session that we're in. And I will tell you, it's going to be really hard. And that's not right. It should not be hard. And so I'll bring it back to Selma was really important. Members of both political parties in Congress were there, and they should have been there. And they cared about it. Members in Alabama, there's only one Democratic member in Congress from Alabama. We all talked about how important it is to make sure that we make the fixes to the law that we need and then take other opportunities. Because of the partisan issues that are present in Congress, and I respect and really like and admire th that Alabama delegation, not one person, except for the Democrat from Alabama, is going to push to get that hurt until they figure out other political issues about elections from a candidate perspective. So you know how I started out, how candidates really should not be able to drive this? They're going to drive it in Congress. And so I'm, I'm a bit ashamed about that. So what's the good note to end on? The good note to end on is voters, even with the barriers that exist because Congress won't fix the law, can engage to make sure that you're telling members of Congress both parties, both houses, that this is an issue that you care about. And you can tell these folks from the state who can make differences today, the power of moving things locally. The focus here wasn't to talk about one issue of inequality over another, but to highlight that they, they really exist. But how many of us remember that gender issues and sexual orientation and marriage equality were very negative things in Congress? It finally went away. Now, why did it go away? Because states began to deal with it. And then it became a non-issue for Congress. That's a good thing, too. States should get to decide the climate that you, you live here, your residence here. So you have the power to help us make those changes locally. And they find themselves pretty quickly then in the halls of Congress. So that's what you can do, uh, whatever you decide. If this is a group that wants uh, the newer issues in the Voter Empowerment Act and change is great, if this is a group that's not so sure, weighing in, though, is very powerful. And that's really the purpose. Selma 
And the movie and the trip encouraged me as a policymaker to reconnect with voters here and about that responsibility and about how powerful, and to quote John Lewis again, how precious that is and how quickly and readily it could go away if we don't all pay attention. And it is the right thing to do from each of your perspectives to fight for the things that you care about. And this is a country that can be proud about the fighters that exist here and the advocates. And this is a great place to use this movie and this anniversary and the Voter Rights Act to really encourage New Mexicans to re-engage at every possible level. Thank you. Congresswoman Lujan Grisham is right. The system that we have for keeping people interested in voting is being addressed at the wrong angle. This reminds me of the movie Selma, where voting rights weren't given to people either. And it's like history is repeating itself, and nothing has really changed since then. But it is reassuring to, that we are giving people a voice and giving people power to change things for their own voting rights. Thank you to Congresswoman Lujan Grisham for addressing the way we view voter rights in America. Now here's our next track, titled Crazy Love, and it's by Irene Diaz. Here in New Mexico, we have an important opportunity coming up to have our voices heard. As you might have heard, the Bernalillo County Commission is holding another hearing about the Santa Elena billion dollar sprawl development on the west side. At the last hearing, the county commission voted down all community appeals, so it's even more important that we take advantage of this opportunity for public comment. Over the past few months, the public has repeatedly voiced their opposition to the Santa Elena Master Plan, which would set aside 22 square miles on the West Mesa for development. One of the biggest concerns about the new development is water. As we deal with the drought here in New Mexico, we can't risk providing the re we can't risk providing the resources to a new city the size of another Rio Rancho. The new development would require 12 million gallons of water every day. Even APS passed the, a resolution denying the Santolina Master Plan. They were concerned about financing, transportation, infrastructure, and water. And this might be one of the last opportunities for public comment. The Bernalillo County Commission hearing will be this Tuesday, June 16th at 1 p.m. That's two. That's just two days away. And the hearing will be held at Vincent E. Griego Chambers at City Hall in Civic Plaza. And if you can't make it out to the hearing, you can still have your voice heard by contacting the commissioners through email at commissioners at burnco.gov. Or just give them a call at 505-468-7000. We have reached the end of tonight's program. Thank you for joining us this evening as we explored our historic tr struggle for voting rights, how 
the historic struggle for voting rights manifests manifests itself in policies today. We would like to thank Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham for providing a space to discuss voting with politicians and organizers. Huge thanks to all the panel panelists for their powerful commentary. Senator Daniel Ivy Soto, County Clerk Maggie Toulouse Oliver. Pamela Herndon of Southwest Women's Law Center, Israel Chavez of Equality NM, and Adrian Lawyer of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Shout out to our rad engineer tonight, Kamaria Umi. And thanks to Christina Rodriguez for editing and producing tonight's show. Additional production assistance came from George Luna Pena, Melissa Harris, and Roberta Real. And we can't forget Alden Bruce, who helped us record at the pa- who helped us record audio at the panel. And last but definitely not least, much appreciation to all of our youth me- media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all our past radio programs, see music playlists, read blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Also, podcasts are now available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. And we're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konama Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Pilar Monfaletto. And I'm Joshua Horton. Coming up next on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock for a special Father's Day edition of Generation Justice. Have a great night.